So in Exodus chapter 2, so I, I've been, um, over the past three years or so, I've been slowly adding to a, a commentary on the Bible that is, uh, Thomas Oden was the main editor, but he got scholars from around the world to work on um, things that were written by the early church. So he takes, I don't actually know if it's the first 400 years, first 600 years, but the first 600 years of Christianity, he takes what people wrote about scripture and he compiles it as one commentary. And so I always enjoy just going and looking to see what someone writes about something. Did, did anyone write anything? And so it's been fascinating to me is the book of John has two big volumes. They wrote a lot about the book of John. And then the book of, of Matthew also gets two volumes. And then you have like Luke is a decent sized volume and Romans is decent sized, but like John, the apostle John, he gets the most. And like Exodus gets, it's like just a little, like some of them and like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, some of those are just, they're all in the same book, you know? And so it's, it's interesting to see what is written. Well, I get here and there's not much written. Um, I shared a little bit last week about, about how concerned they were with the midwives lying um, and what that meant. And so there was that discussion. Um, but I found uh, this week, let's see if I brought it up here. I thought I did. I found a poem that somebody wrote. And there's no good to mention it if I don't have it. Let's see. Oh, here we go. There we go. So this was a poem that was written by Prudentius, who was a Roman lawyer and a governor of his precinct, and he was also a Christian. And he wrote a number of songs that we still know to this day um, that are still used in liturgy in different places. But here is his, A Hymn to Moses' Mother and the Midwife by Prudentius. Thus Moses in a former age escaped proud Pharaoh's foolish law, and as the savior of his race prefigured Christ who was to come. A cruel edict had been passed, forbidding Hebrew mothers all, when sons were born to them, to rear these viral pledges of their love. Devoutly scornful of the king, a zealous midwife found a way to hide her charge and keep him safe for future glory and renown. So that's a... That's, that's what I found for Exodus chapter 2. I didn't find a whole lot that was written, but someone wrote a poem. Uh, it was, it's, in the, it's one of his hymns for every day. So I thought that was fascinating. <clears throat> so Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, A man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. I'm going to pause right there for today. And I'm going to look at the first two verses more specifically. So the first verse says, A man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. And so... <clears throat> It says a man of the house of Levi took to wife a daughter of Levi. And when I went and looked in other scriptures, like in Exodus 6, 16 through 20, there's a little bit more written there. So if you flip on over to Exodus chapter 6, verse 16, it says, these are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. So this is going back to Jacob's son, Levi. This is the people that were coming into um, Egypt with Jacob. 
These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And the years of the life of Levi were 137. The sons of Gershon were Libni and Shimi according to their families. And the sons of Kohath were Amram, Izar, Hebron, and Uzziel. And the years of the life of Kohath were 133. The sons of Merari were Mali and Mushi. These are the families of Levi according to their generations. Now Amram took for himself Jochebed, his father's sister, as wife. And she bore him Aaron and Moses. And the years of the life of Amram were 137. So several things to note here. Levi, it says, he lived for 137 years. His brother Joseph lived for 110 years. And so we find in that 27-year that period, uh, but it's not exactly 27 years because Levi was actually older than Joseph by a number of years. And so we have Levi outliving Joseph. And so because of the Bible story books and things, I had always thought when Moses was 120 years old that, that he was very old and that God had kept him alive longer just because he was his servant, right? And then I discover that his... So, so Levi lived 137 years, then Kohath lived 133 years, and then Amram lived 137 years, and then his son Moses only lived 120 years. So, so it wasn't that he actually lived longer. It might, he might have had his strength longer, I don't know, but he actually lived a shorter lifespan. And so that was, that was um, a bit of a revelation for me this time coming through. I know I've read that before because I know it's in the reading. If you read through the entire Bible, you have to read Exodus 6, but I just hadn't ever really noticed it, right? And so I was like, okay. So Moses, his lifespan, I had thought was unusually long for his time potentially, but it wasn't really. His, his, and, you know, his ancestors lived longer. But what I really noticed in this is in this list that we just said, the family of Moses and Aaron, we're skipping the girls. We're not talking about them unless we have to. So for instance, when it says that Levi had this, um, he had three sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. What's fascinating is that later it says that Amram took for himself Jochebed, his father's sister, as wife. So if Amram's father is Kohath, and if Kohath is one of the three sons of Levi, and his father's sister would be one of Levi's daughters, because that's what it says. So we also don't list, when it says Amram had children, he took for himself Jochebed, his father's sister, his wife, and she bore him Aaron and Moses in the years. So it says that it doesn't talk about Miriam, but we all, we know that Miriam is a child of, is one of his siblings. I mean, she, he has a sister when he's put into the, the Nile River. So if you look back at it, it says a man, uh, Exodus chapter two, verse one again, back there again, it says a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. So you'd think, okay, so this, is, this feels like the firstborn child, but it's not. You have Aaron and you have Miriam that have already been born. So what this is more specifically saying is it's, it's cluing us in who this is, the, the house of Levi, um, but it's in the time of the midwives, in the time of the pharaohs saying, a pharaoh saying, kill all the baby boys, the Hebrew boys. At, during that time, they conceived and had another child. And so I was thinking through that, like this is a very specific story. We find the other pieces in other places. And, and then we go on with the, the story of the Nile, with him being put into, the, into that little basket or ark, as it's called in some places, and he's in here, and he's put out there by the riverbank, and his sister watches. And so then next week, we'll continue with the, with the story of the daughter of Pharaoh, but I have a simple question. It literally says, 
when she saw that it was a beautiful child. So I had like, if the child had been ugly, would she have killed him? Like, so this made me stop and look. Okay, come here, Corey. <laughs> hey there. So I went and looked it up, and it says that, so the word for beautiful in some places is translated proper. And so if she was a proper child. And so the word is tob, or tob, tobi, tob. And it means good, well-pleasing, fruitful, morally correct, proper, convenient, useful, profitable, abundant, plentiful, kind and benevolent, and then continues on from there. So we have this, this thing. And so my first, that was my first question. Like, what was happening with the other Hebrew children? Were they killing the other? Were the, and, and so the, the deep question was, were there Hebrews that went along with what Pharaoh said and said, okay, we're supposed to kill our children, so let's do it. Or were they all in this boat where... It's not so much that, and maybe it's possible that with Pharaoh's words going around that maybe the parents are going, I don't know, should we keep this child? What, what's happening if it's a boy, is it a girl? What are we supposed to do? Like, obviously, Aaron and Miriam are older. They've already survived. That was not the edict at that time. They didn't have that government de- decree or mandate at the time, but now they have this decree. And now they're expecting a child. And so it's possible that they're thinking, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe we'll, you know, do something. You know, there, someone says, hey, Pharaoh commanded, commands that you have to kill all your children if, the, if it's a Hebrew boy. Like, what are you going to do about that? Are you going to comply with Pharaoh or not? And so the response may be, we're thinking about it. I don't know. It just, it's because it's a child, it's in the womb. Um, but then the baby is born, and I don't think it was a beauty competition where they said, okay, which one's the most beautiful? Like, it wasn't a comparison between one baby and the next. It was just a looking at children, looking at a baby, and say, babies are good. Babies are beautiful, right? <laughs> <Huh>? <laughs> and so it was, a, it was more of a statement or of a realization that a baby, a child, is a good thing. And so while you don't have the child with you on the outside, you might potentially consider maybe we don't need to keep this child. Maybe this is going to be, you know, it might be too much trouble for us. But once the child shows up on the outside and we're actually looking at this child, is that a bright light? (laughs) And we're actually looking at the child, then a truth comes out that is still universally seen. When you look into the eyes of a baby, when you're playing with a baby, when you're holding a baby, the human heart says, this is good. A child, a baby is beautiful. It is a good thing. And it's not that you have to win a beauty contest. It's just, it's a baby. And a baby is good. It's, it's right. It's proper. It's beautiful. This was as life should be. You want to go sit with mommy again? Or you want to finish the message? <laughs> and so if a baby is right and good and proper, they don't have an option. If this baby is going to die as Pharaoh commanded, 
It's going to do so over the, you might say the dead bodies of its parents. The parents are going to fight this because this is, when they look at the baby, they say, this is not right. It's not okay. And it's possible that they were not the only parents that said this. It's very possible that throughout many Hebrew children were hidden, but we're telling the story of one Hebrew boy. It's also possible that other Hebrew boys were discovered and killed. But we're not telling that story. We're, telling this, we're looking at this account of this one boy who said when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. So an obvious statement is that babies are good and beautiful. And the second obvious statement that we forget really quickly is that all of us were babies once. That this is something that God created. So if you look at Psalm 139, verse 13, starting in verse 13. So Psalm 139, starting in verse 13, it says, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. You formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. It says, I, when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they all were written. The day is fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. See, this is really about life. When, they, when, when, when you hold baby Moses in your arms and you look at baby Moses, now there is clearly a baby here. This is clearly about a child. And a child is right and beautiful and good. When, when the baby is in the womb, when the baby has not yet been seen, you haven't heard it cry or coo or anything, you haven't seen it at all, you can talk about it in a kind of distant sort of third person way. You can talk about it, you can talk about a fetus, you can talk about all the different pieces, and you can even talk about the, where it is and it's, where it's growing, but it's not a human thing in most of, when, when you're not thinking in terms of children. So like the Pharaoh himself, he's had children. He's got at least one daughter that we know of. He can talk about the Hebrew boys and be very separated from them. But here we have a baby and maybe even Pharaoh's daughter, who knows, you know, maybe she sits around the, the supper table and they're talking about things and maybe she throws in her two cents worth. But there's something that happened when she opens the basket later and sees a baby there. She wants to save it. So we're not talking, so in God's perspective, when God looks at this, he sees before the days are starting to be numbered, before we are saying your first birthday, you know, two months old, two weeks old, any of that stuff, before any of that is being said, God is saying, I know all of your days. I fashioned you. I framed your days. I know who you are. Even when we're still in secret. 
And so from God's perspective, this child is worth something long before we are able to start counting its days. Like, I mean, with, with our current understanding of pregnancy and everything, it's amazing what all we do, where we say, okay, was conceived on this day, and we can talk about how many weeks along we are and all that kind of stuff. It's amazing. But this truly is about life because God sees the life yet unborn and knows its days. He's looking at this. So it's about life, but it's also about more than life. So if you think about in, the, in terms of life, uh, this is an exercise that I sometimes do. I'll meet someone and maybe they are crusty and bitter and angry. And so if I do a simple mind exercise and think, what would this person have looked like as a baby? What about a 10 year old? And I start going through my mind and like taking the age off of a person. And what, I, what it does for me, this exercise is like, at some point I'm seeing this person as being I see the vulnerability of this person. I see that they might have been hurt. And, and so I start seeing the full lifespan instead of just this brief moment I'm looking at. Now, same thing can happen. I might see a beautiful young girl who is, you know, proud and arrogant. And I think, you know, just age her. Age her all the way until she's old and bitter. And you're like, well, that's not pretty. Like right now, you look at it and you're like, wow, that's beautiful. And then, but there's something there that is not beautiful. So you want to see beauty inside and out so that it will age well. And so it helps me look at people and not be enamored or put off by someone, but to actually see their whole life. And so in a way, when I'm talking about babies, this is helpful for me because every one of us was at one point a baby. We were all a child once. We're growing. We're going to, and so then if you see an older person who is, who is ending or is nearing the end of their journey in life and you look at the things that they're dealing with, the things they're concerned about, what they're talking about, how they're living, whether they're selfish or unselfish, both of it can be a lesson to me because I, so, you know, when I was, uh, I think, 17 or 18, 18, I think I was, um, I was driving in a car and I was riding along with a man. He was a doctor and we were riding along and he was, he was giving me a lecture on safety first. And literally, as he's giving me the lecture on safety first, he ran a stop sign. Because he always runs that stop sign. And it was one of those, you know, we're out in the country, not much traffic, and so you have this, this, this one road comes up, and so our road kind of continues straight, but we were on a side road, and so the main road is here, and so we had a stop sign. So as you're, as you're cruising down, you can look kind of both ways and say, ah, oh, it's not, you know, and so he ran through this stop sign and I was sitting there like not listening to him as he keeps talking about his, because he, he had a safety first talk he'd go do at schools. And so as I was listening to this and thinking about it, I'm like, you know, I roll through some stop signs. I sometimes, you know, and as I was thinking about this, I was like, if I think that when I'm old, I can suddenly stop these habits and become someone different, no. What I am now is what I will be then, and I don't want to scare my grandkids. So I started stopping at stop signs, like trying to stop completely so that I would get that habit in me so that I wouldn't just treat them all as yield signs or whatever, so that I actually stop. So I, occasionally these days, I still have to remind myself about that. No, I'm stopping. I need to stop, not just roll, because, you know, because you know, accidents can happen. You can accidentally... Like I, a couple, I think Peter was with me the other week and we were, you know, we pull up to the light, it's red, I'm waiting and I'm watching all the lights. Well, the green arrow 
the, the yellow, red arrow turns green and I just take off, but I'm not in that lane. I'm going straight. And so the other cars that are coming to turn, they are honking at me. I'm like, what are they honking about? <laughs> and suddenly I realized, wait a minute, I think the light was still red. So, so there's a, so this, this thing about aging, like we start somewhere and we're going to end up somewhere, but the things that I'm doing now, unless I change them, that's who I am. And so if I look around, and this has been a good exercise for me, when I, when I see things in elderly people and, you know, like Stacy was spending some time once with an elderly lady who couldn't whisper anymore. And so, but she, she had the habit of always talking about whatever she saw. And so like, so Stacy had gone out to eat with her. And so the, she's like looking up at the waitress and says, wow, does she know her hair is ugly or whatever it was. Like she was like loudly saying things about people that were very judgmental and critical. And you look at her and you think, well, isn't that a sweet little lady? But like her heart wasn't right with God. It wasn't sweet all the way. So Stacy was loving on her and trying to help her become a more loving. And, but the, the poor lady, she had settled into her rhythm a long time ago. She was who she was. And so when I look at a, when we, when we look at a child, it's hard for me to look at Corey and say, will you be a bitter old woman one day? I don't want that. I want her to be a sweet old grandmother grandmother that loves God and loves people. That's what I want. That's what I want for my, I want my sons to be kind gentlemen when they get older. That's what I want. But this is not just about the baby because babies grow quickly and then they're no longer babies. They become adults. This is really about life, but it is also about hope. So if you remember back in Genesis three, here comes the serpent and we have the whole account of Adam and Eve sinning against God. And now God has found them and is talking with them. And he's speaking specifically to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there is an enmity that's set up between the seed of the woman and between the enemy of God. That old serpent, the dragon, as, as Revelation refers to him. And so this, this enmity actually continues to our day. It is our battle as well. So first, we have this physical attack on all babies and children. But secondly, it's a spiritual attack on the children of God. And so if you go over to Revelation 12, so we have in Genesis 3 and then Revelation 12. In Revelation 12, we have this account where the dragon is going after the woman. And the woman bears a child. And, and it says that, you know, the, so there's like, there's things that happen, but at one point toward the end of the chapter, the dragon goes to make war on the rest of the children of the woman because the, the one escaped, right? And so the picture is Jesus, our older brother, he has escaped in the most unlikely way by dying. He has escaped. And now he's sitting at the right hand of God, the father, because he rose again from the dead. He conquered death. But we are still the children of God. And so the attack against us continues. Because there was a, there is a, it's as if the enemy has had one thought. It says, oh, the seed of the woman is going to bruise my head. Not if I can help it. And so it's attack on the seed of the woman. So anytime there is a he that was being born, there was an attack. But then it went farther. It just started, you know, it just went to everything. Just children were being attacked. And so if you think about the physical battle that's been raging from Genesis to Revelation, so from the beginning of time until now, the enemy comes, in John 10.10, 10, Jesus says this, the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. 
But how does he kill, steal, and destroy? Well, here we have in Exodus, we have Pharaoh killing the children. If we go to the time of the birth of Christ, we see Herod, King Herod, killing the boys, the children. Uh, when Israel comes into Canaan, what is a big problem in Canaan? Molech. They're offering their children to Molech. Molech is destroying the children with fire. You have the Syrians who go into any country and place and they destroy, they bash the heads on the rocks, the babies' heads on the rocks. They're just killing people left and right. There's no value of life. If you look at in, in the ancient Greek cultures, in the Roman cultures, and now there is abortion that is just rampant. There's no value of life. If you think about all the little abandoned baby girls in India, life is not valued. If you look at the one-child communist, uh, the, in communist China, the one-child policy, life is not valued. If you look at the industrial revolution and how the child labor worked in those days and how many children died in factories and stuff, it was horrible. But people were doing it for the love of money and for other things. It was the enemy killing, stealing, and destroying. If you look at the killing fields of Indonesia, if you look at Sri Lanka, the other places like that, you see life not being valued. You see the, the Jews dying in the Holocaust. And you look at all the various wars at different times and you just see a common theme for, since the creation of the world where life, the enemies of God do not value life. And so it comes to a, it comes a very strong picture here that life is always targeted by the enemy and Christ values life. And so there's a spiritual sense here that I want us to think about, and it has to do with this. We can say, like right now, 40 Days for Life is happening, so there's people out praying in front of uh, Planned Parenthood, and we're, there's people who are praying and asking God for mercy for all of these babies who are being destroyed. There are people that are praying for the, pe- the abortion doctors and such. There's a lot of prayer happening right now during 40 Days for Life. It's an awesome way to activate, right? And so that's good. But I want us to think for a moment about, it's not just about saving the baby. It's about valuing life. Now, personally, having seen many people in the, in the, um, both the pro-life movement and the abolitionist movement, I have seen a lot of believers who really care about the whole person, who really care about all. They're not just worried about the baby. They're worried about the mother and how she got to this point. They're concerned about the entire life and all of life that's here. So So I don't want to sound as if I'm coming down hard against all of that. I want to ask some questions and make sure that we're considering all of this. If we go over to Matthew chapter, uh, so it's both Matthew chapter 18 and 19. I'm going to first read out of Matthew 19. Matthew chapter 19. So we had the, 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 the reference from Genesis with the reference from Revelation. So now we go to Jesus and what he's saying. So Matthew chapter 19, verse 13. It says, Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, Do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. And so this is a very clear blessing of the little children. The little children are being welcomed in. If we go back to the previous chapter, Matthew 18, 
starting in verse 1. So Matthew 18, starting in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Then a very serious warning, verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. And then he continues his message, but he, he has taken this one moment and used his example of a little child. So he's not specifically talking about a baby the size of Corey. He's talking about a child. And so there are several things for us to meditate upon, and it, it has to do with how we respond to the words of God and the words of the Creator. So in, like I mentioned earlier, John 10.10, 10, where Jesus is talking about he is the good shepherd and that he's willing to lay down his life for the sheep. And he just says this, the thief comes to kill, to steal, and destroy. But I'm come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And so what's amazing to me in looking at this, what, what you know, Amram and Jochebed got to discover was that the creator God of the earth is actually enlisting their help to bring this child into the world, to bring Moses into the world. So the creator God himself is saying, will you work with me? And he allows them to be part of this process to bring Moses in. And then Moses not only helps deliver Israel from Egypt, but he becomes this image and picture of Christ, of the deliverer and a lawgiver. There are other pictures, like Joshua is another picture of Christ who brings us into the promised land. But we, here we have Amram and Jochebed. They are, you know, if you want to put it, they're a, they're a foreshadowing of Joseph and Mary. So here they are, they're in Egypt. And if, if Jochebed is Levi's daughter, what this does is even with these, with these overlapping of the years, what's amazing to me is the, the amount of time so I think Sharice read the part, the 400 years from Abraham until they're being brought out of Egypt. They weren't 400 years in Egypt. It was 400 years from the time of Abraham when that promise was made until they came. So their actual time of suffering in Egypt was less than what we sometimes think. I sometimes think it was hundreds and hundreds of years, but it can go quickly. In one generation, we can go from forgetting what has happened before to just being in complete bondage. And so the picture there for us as individuals, as believers is we can quickly forget the freedom and the promise and the hope that we had before. In this instance, I believe Amram and Jochebed, Jochebed, they were part of looking at Moses going, this is a child. It's a beautiful child. We're not going to kill this child. And so they did something with this child to help protect it. They hid him for three months. They kept doing things. And finally, they had him in that little basket. And it seems as if it was very intentional what she did so that Pharaoh's daughter would see this. I don't know that, but it seems that way, that she put him intentionally in a very specific place and had Miriam keep watch. And so not only were they working alongside the creator to create life, but they were also working alongside the creator to do something for his will and for the preservation of his people. 
And if, when, I, when I stop and think about all the people throughout the ages who have spent time training a child, you know, we have that old, that, that saying that says, um, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. And there are times when you're reading through the Old Testament, the Kings and the Chronicles, and you read through there, and it'll talk about this wicked king, and it will mention his mother's name. His mother was so-and-so. Now, occasionally, it'll also mention the, the righteous king's mother's name. But I think that's fascinating, that because of the way the kings very quickly, and this is something to consider when you read through the Old Testament, is that even King David himself and Solomon himself, they didn't value the life of their children nearly as much as God would have had them do it. Many, many times, they barely knew their own children. Their sons were not trained by them personally. They were raised by their mothers, along with all the other mothers of the king's son who were each raising a child. And that, when you stop and look at the destruction that came out of that, the, the amount of, uh, it, was, it was a bad situation. The king had his multiple wives. He had, his, he had everything he wanted, but the fruit was bad because life wasn't being valued. See, it's one thing to say, I will fight to protect life. It's one thing, literally, to say, I will die, you know, whether it's fighting in a war or something. There's something heroic about that that we look at and say, wow, that's awesome. But it's another thing entirely to say, I will live so that my sons may live. I will live so that my children will, I will live in a way that values life. And so that's where I want to bring us is this question, because something like with the Industrial Revolution, here comes the child labor. I don't think that any one individual sat around and said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take people's children and orphans and stuff when they're eight, nine years old, and I'm going to put them into this position where they're going to be laboring 10, 12 hours a day. I'm going to steal their childhood from them. I'm going to destroy whatever family life they could have had, and I'm going to pay them minimum wage, so minimal, minimally, so that they have to keep working just to keep eating. I don't think anyone sat down and planned that out, but I think it was the enemy that was behind that kind of thing to where eventually you have the cries of children who are stuck in a system. And so this happens over and over throughout history where something will happen and the next thing you know, like right now, I honestly believe that one of the cries that's coming before God in heaven is all of these children that are being stuck in an education system that isn't designed to love children and love life. It's designed to fulfill something else, but it's not designed to love children, to embrace who God made them to be. And so there are mixed throughout, there are parents and teachers who love their children and who get it, and they're loving their, their children, they're loving life, they're helping them grow, and that's awesome, but the system itself is broken because God created something in the family that was delightful and beautiful. He created something in a community. And so if we were talking about, and so I, I, I just think history is gonna look back on this period and say, this is when we tried to kill education by making every child do the exact same thing in the exact same time, in the exact same way. This was a time when, when we tried an experiment that failed and we were killing education because we didn't love the life of the ones that we were using. We were trying to use them to make ourselves look successful in some way. So I think we have to be very aware of that, that it's very possible that we, as believers, 
while saying, oh yes, we love children. Yes, I am pro-life or yes, I'm an abolitionist or you know, however we come across, however we communicate this, there are still ways that we can speak in a way that is not right and it reveals a brokenness in our heart where we're not truly valuing life the way Christ values life. As the redeemed of the Lord, we want to love and protect life. We want to in all ways stand for this. And so it would be one thing to, you know, and, and this, is, this is true. Every time someone in America, uh, you know, we have, we've been given this gift where we're able to see our children before they're born. It's an amazing gift. And so it's one thing to look at that and say, oh, you know, you need to be committed to take care of this child and you know, sometimes now they can look at it and they can tell you, oh, this child has such and such a disease or whatever. And there are parents who love these children and, and just, you know, I, I am continually blessed by uh, Sam and Polly Girard and how much they love their little children, even, and, and they have to love them from the, from the time they're born until they die. And so, you know, here's, here's a father who is building caskets for his babies. It's, it's heartbreaking when you stop and think about it, but he loves them. He delights in them. He takes care of them. He is showing value in life. He is reflecting who Christ is. And so I want to think in those terms and say, let's not just look at the baby, but let's look at the entirety of our culture. And let's take this seriously where he says, therefore, whoever humbles himself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What is it about humbling ourselves as a little child? See, I can come with understanding and, and facts and intellectual information. And I can even do, uh, we can do all kinds of things and I can explain why it's best to do something this way or that way. And I can even say, I can find ways, and this is what the, the, the scribes and Pharisees were doing at the time of Jesus. I can take the law of God and I can look at it and say, yes, but listen to this. Here's how we're going to apply this. And I can completely subvert what, what is intended um, and I think I've mentioned this before. I was reading through the, the Talmud and I, I was just shocked by how much they were finding ways to subvert what it actually says. So for instance, uh, and I think I shared this one before, uh, I'll share it again just because I think it's a good example. of. So in, in the Old Testament law, there is a law that says if you have a steer or a bull that comes out and gores someone, the first time, there's a little bit of grace given for you and you're able to depend this thing up and take care of it. But if it has done this before and then it does it again, then you are guilty yourself of manslaughter. And not only do you have to destroy that thing, but you have to bear the consequences. So there's this very serious law because the first time it happens, you should be like, oh, I didn't know it had, ever, it had any tendency like this, so I'm going to go kill that thing or whatever. You are responsible for it. So here's what the Talmud did with it. The different rabbis and such said, well, you know, if you have a really good bull, because you know, if they're breeding animals, he's like, if you have a really good one, but it has this bad habit of doing this, uh, the one way that you can not have to kill it and you're not responsible is if your own children are able to take care of this animal, and so it's fine around your children, but it hurts people outside, well, you don't have to destroy it and you're not guilty because children are able to take care of it. So they took the law of God and they subverted it. 
by adding something that was not there. They said, well, you know, obviously my daughter or my son is able to take care of this animal. And so what you did, you must have provoked it. So they change it around completely. And so suddenly you can have a mean animal that will hurt other people if it ever gets out, but no one's responsible because a child was feeding it. And so it's just simple things like that. So when I was reading through it, I got to the point where I, I understood why Jesus could be so upset and angry with the scribes and Pharisees of the day saying, you're subverting the justice of God. You take the very commands of God, you're, you're, you're protecting them. You are very carefully and tediously copying over the law from this scroll to this scroll. You're making sure that it's preserved, but you're making sure that it doesn't apply to you. You're protecting yourself against this. And so when I think about us and I think about life and I think about how we not only work alongside the creator to bring babies into the world, but we work alongside the creator to train children in the Lord. And then we get to disciple one another. We spend our entire life wanting to help each other with what the law of God is and where we come from. All of this together is a beautiful picture of what God is doing. He's working through us. He has a desire. And so whenever we start cutting people off, whenever we start in any way not celebrating life, then we have crossed over. See, a child would simply hear this and say, oh, we have to love life. We have to take care of this. And so an adult would be able to say, yes, we need to love life. However, and we can give all of our reasons for why certain life may be not be as important as someone else. Or, and we can find ways to, in practical reasons, not love someone or not love life. And so as I was thinking about this and the fact that in our day, we have an epidemic. Like, I, you know, um, this is another conversation that Stacy has had with, with a, a lady who was beginning to lose some of her memory and stuff, but she would ask, how many children do you have? And so she would, you had one, right, at the time. We had one, but when she would ask how many were in your family or something, she would ask, do you want more? And you'd be like, yes, I want to have, to have more. And she'd be like, oh, children. And she would have this little response. And she had dutifully done what her parents had, she had had two, a boy and a girl, and she had raised them. The saddest thing was, like her, the way she would talk about the children was it was a complete duty. So that it wasn't the fact, it wasn't the number of children or how, but it was, it was a complete duty. Like she did what she had to do. Like she didn't value them. We got to see her children actually spend some time with her and they did not value her. And now as she was nearing the end of her life, as decisions had to be made about what would happen, they weren't loving her. They were adult men and women rolling their eyes at their little grandmother mom and being annoyed by her because they didn't love her because she didn't love them. They were duty, and now she was duty to them. And so this, this idea that we are to love life and that we look at a baby and we say, this is a beautiful child, this is a proper child, this concept is not just about the baby. It's about all of life. It's about loving one another. It's about learning how, how much does God love life? How much does the enemy hate life? The enemy just wants to destroy things. That's who, what he's doing. And so when we look around us and we see the brokenness in the world, we may be tempted to ascribe some of the death and the dying and say, well, that's just what God wants to make himself look good. We, we might say it differently. 
but we might be tempted to say if this is what God wants. But I want us to be in a position that our hearts can break along with the heart of God and say, this is not what God wants. This is broken. This is not okay. This is not good. This is not beautiful, proper, or morally correct. This is sad. And then to spend our lives celebrating life, protecting life, valuing at life. And as the redeemed of the Lord, you know, he is the way, the truth, and the life that we also could represent life. And that we would, when the time, you know, in the, those moments when people are writing the history of our times and, and Pharaoh gives the edict that says you need to kill this Hebrew child, that we look at our male son who is born, our little Moses, and we look at him and say, he's a beautiful baby. He's a beautiful child. And we're not going to comply with what Pharaoh says because Pharaoh is echoing the words of the enemy. So this might apply differently to each of us in, at our season of life of how do we value life? But it's necessary for us to consider this question. Have we bought the lie of the enemy that in some way is dehumanizing someone else or devaluing someone else, whether it's a race, whether it's an age group, whether it's a, a, a political persuasion? Because I find in myself, you know, and, and this is sometimes too, you know, when we pray through the Psalms, like the part I just read the, uh, from Psalm 139, talking about how God knew us, the very next piece is a prayer asking God to destroy someone because they're the enemy of God. And so I, I struggle with this sometimes. When I look at this and I say, well, how am I supposed to value life and do that? And this, this goes back to this moral dilemma that Sergeant York had and others have where they say, okay, if I go and I kill that person, I might stop who knows how many other people from dying. Does that mean I value life or does that mean I don't value life? And this, is, this is, can be a very difficult question for people. And I, I want to make sure that I throw this part in here because life is more than just our physical life. There is a spiritual life. There is being alive in Christ. That's what we want for all of our children. If we spend all of our time and we get them all, you know, if we get, let's say we as a culture, get it to the point where we have zero abortions and we have almost zero infant deaths and we get it up to where everyone is surviving and we're, we really have this culture of life, it's awesome, but we don't tell them about Jesus and we don't disciple them, we're still a culture of death. And so there is a very necessary part where we're valuing life because God values life, but we're really embracing him and his life in us and in those around us. And so as I, as I think about you know, where we're going with the Exodus and what's about to happen next is God is going to use Moses in a mighty way. Moses is not ready. He's a baby now. And we see him, we will get to see him as he develops and grows. But right now, He's in the middle of the enemy trying to destroy the Hebrew children. And God stands with the children of Amram. And next week we'll discuss how God takes Moses and in order to preserve him, seems to put him in the most dangerous place. He puts him right in the middle of Pharaoh's house. Right where the edict came from that said, kill all the Hebrew children. He puts him right there and takes care of him. So it's amazing to me how God takes care of his children, how God preserves life. Because the, the part, and this is, 
you, you look at, um, I've been reading The Secret of the Strength by Peter Hoover, talking about the early Anabaptists, and, and you see here, you will see, uh, for instance, this was in, uh, sorry, I can't remember the guy's name. It was something like Yost. Uh, he was up in Holland. He had an awesome voice as a child. His parents put him in the church choir. So he was singing in the church choir. The king of Spain came by. They brought that particular church choir down to the mass that they were doing to celebrate the king of Spain visiting. The king of Spain heard him singing, said, wow, that's a beautiful voice. I want him in my ensemble back at home in the, in, in the palace. And so they came, they, word got out. And so Yost goes and runs and hides in the woods for six weeks. He doesn't want to go with the king. He doesn't want to go to Spain. When the king's messengers and soldiers finally stop looking for Yost, he comes back out and he goes to a local Anabaptist teacher and says, I want to follow Jesus with my whole life. I want to be baptized. Now he had been baptized as an infant in the church. He'd been singing in the church, but he felt that he was not himself following Christ. He wanted to follow Christ with everything. So he was baptized. Well, word gets out. Yost is baptized. And so now they're looking for him again. And he was actually, uh, about the time he turned 18, he was burned at the stake. And all the town folk that came out, when they came there, what the, the account says is as he stood there in the flames, he sang a beautiful song of his dedication to Christ and how much he was longing to see Jesus. And so I look at that and I say, okay, Lord, here's a battle. They're taking people's lives away. And why, why is this ongoing? But what is so beautiful about this is I said earlier, there's a physical sense and there's a spiritual sense. Here's Yost. He is more alive in that moment than he was at any moment leading up to that. He is more alive in Christ. He's going to see his savior. And so there is a spiritual life in Christ that God cares about more than he cares about our earthly life. And so there are times and seasons when we're called to suffer where we, like Jesus, lay down our earthly life in order to embrace the heavenly life, the spiritual life. And so I want to, uh, I just wanted to, you know, make sure that we're thinking in all these terms of life because I can make this about abortion from today, but it's more than that. It's much, much more than that. Because even in a household that is fighting abortion, we can have parents who do not delight in their children. If children are a gift from the Lord, as it says in, I believe, Psalm 128. If children are a gift from the Lord, then they are a delight. They are something that we love and we're happy that we have them and we delight in them. That's different than just raising them. When we say we delight in life and we are going to protect life, that is also different than just, you know, there's, there's so much life around us and there's also so much death around us. And so we want to make sure that we're keeping in terms of heavenly life. What does it mean to be alive in Christ? What does it mean to be walking in him? And so I, in some ways, you know, at the beginning I read the part where it says, and he was a beautiful child. And I said, what, had he been ugly, would they have thrown him away? And the true answer to that is, in our instance, a lot of times, yes. If we don't see value in someone else's life that they can add to us, and in fact, right now, we have a really, really horrible thing happening all across our culture. And it's just a simple thing of people calling other people toxic and writing them off and saying, I'm not, I don't need your toxicity in my life. And we just write them off, forgetting that the love of God and the life of God in me 
might be able to reach out and heal the brokenness that's over there and forgetting that there is something of value in all people. The enemy understands there's something of value in all people because he tries to kill all people. And so this is, a, I think, an important thing for us to just really consider for ourselves and say, if someone had to look at just my life and how I interact with my wife, with my children, with people at work, with people around me, if they just had to measure me on my interactions with other people, would they say that I valued life or would they say that I valued me and self? And it's just a good question. And it's a good way to think through this and say, if, I, if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and I am called to follow him, I want to live in that life. I want to celebrate that life. I want to walk in that life. And then when the edict comes and Pharaoh does something, there won't be a question around me. Is he going to walk according to Pharaoh's law or God's law? Everyone knows, well, he's going to walk with God's law. And if that means physical death, so be it, because I live in the life of Christ. Now, we've been blessed with a culture that is able to, we're such a... um, I don't even know how to say it. We're like a contradiction in our culture because we have all of this medical gear. We're able to s- celebrate and provide life. We can rescue someone. We can, we can perform um, operations on babies who are still in the womb. We can do all, it's amazing what we can do. And yet at the same time, we're having a big battle right now in our culture because much of our culture says it's okay to kill babies. And so we have this real contradiction I just want to make sure that we don't have a contradiction in ourselves and in the church, but that we can truly embrace life in all levels. And so that's a, it's more of a question to create an a ongoing thought process for myself and for you than it is just a simple solution saying points one, two, and three, if you do these, then you're valuing life. But it's more of a question of just simply saying, Lord, do I love people the way you do? Do I love life the way you do? Like, it's easy enough for me to say you should not kill the baby because I'm looking at it and going, it's a beautiful child. You shouldn't kill this. But do I love life? Because the enemy, the thief, is trying to steal it everywhere he can. And he continues and will continue to do so until all things have put, been put under the feet of Christ. I look forward to that day. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you that you give us simple accounts of what happened to some of the people, like Moses, when he's coming uh, into this world and he's going to be raised up in Pharaoh's house, and then you're going to use him to deliver his people from Pharaoh. Lord, it's a phenomenal when I look at the path you take him on. But the fact that his parents were willing to stand and say, no, we're not doing that. We're not complying with the law of the land because it does not agree with the law of nature and of nature's God. Lord, that's powerful. And that's what we want. We want to embrace that. We want to stand for life. And so, Lord, we submit ourselves to you. And, Lord, as as a baby is beautiful and as life is beautiful, we want to pray for life. And, Lord, I, I pray for those in our fellowship and connected to our fellowship who are suffering with various diseases right now. I just ask that you would bring health and healing to those and teach us as a fellowship how to pray for people. Lord, we want to value the things you value. Lord, we love you. We submit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.